0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. About three years ago, we were up in West Virginia on a church retreat. We took a church-wide retreat, and uh, Josh, our missions minister, met him. It was about 8.30 in the morning. I could tell he'd been up for a while. And I said, what what have you been doing? He said, well, I I couldn't sleep. and I've been reading this book, and I just had to finish it. He went out and found a coffee shop in West Virginia at 5 a.m. And he said, I was in that coffee shop, and I was just bawling like a baby, crying. And that's not something I normally do. And uh, he said, I'm reading this book called The Shack by Paul Young. And he said, it was just so powerful. So Paul Young is here today. He originally, just to know, so you know the background, he did not have this in mind when he wrote the book. He did not have in mind that The Shack would become a number one New York Times bestseller. His intent was, is to write 15 copies and give six of those copies to his kids. This was for his kids to read. And one thing turned into the other. We had dinner with him last night, and uh, just a wonderful person, uh, humble and down-to-earth, and ministers in such a really special way. He told us stories about being a speaker at an atheist book club. He told us about flying in last night and sitting next to a United States senator who he was able to hand the book, and that senator from Salt Lake City to here uh, read most of the book. So, God has used this book in amazing ways. And uh, just from this first service that we, we had a few moments ago, actually, uh, Paul didn't even realize that we had two services. So, he was geared up for that one service. And uh, so, we, we went just a little bit over, but um, we really had a great time. I want you to help me welcome Paul Young. Off just yet. Thank you, Ryan. Let's just have a just a brief word of prayer for what God is about to do in this place. Heavenly Father, we just exited a very special time. Your presence was here in a very powerful way, and many people were touched and healed. And We feel your presence here still with us now. Have your will and your way in this place. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would accomplish all that is in the Father's heart. We thank you for Paul. We thank you, God, that his heart is to share his story to share your love, and to see people touched and healed to the glory of Jesus Christ. Bless him, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Thank you. Did I manage to turn this on? Nope. Test one, two. There we go. Okay. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Two services. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So I didn't feel bad about going a little bit long in the first one. Now I know why I should have felt bad. Sorry about the parking. You know, uh, now, here's the other thing. When I stand up, I have no idea where we're going. So if you were here in the first service, sorry, no idea where we're going, okay? And uh, so as as we go, it'll probably go a very different direction from whatever we did this morning because I'm old enough I can't remember so, and I like this anyway. This is, I never asked f- for any of this. I, uh, I, was, um, I was trying to write something that Kim, my wife, had asked me to do, which was to put in one place how I think as a gift. And I've written as gifts for friends and family for an, a number of years, and I never thought anybody else would care, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it's my friends and family. They always love me at the end of the day. So this is all a surprise to me. My girls have told me that I've totally ruined the idea of celebrity for them. It's pretty funny. The, um, when I, when I wrote this and I wrote the story in 2005, got it done for Christmas. I'll tell you kind of a cool story because the book was never intended to be published. I don't know anything about publishing. I've never published anything, never thought about publishing anything. It never crossed my mind to publish anything and, um, And so I just was simply trying to get it done for Christmas uh, for my kids. And and, um, Mackenzie's weekend in the book, if you've read the book, Mackenzie spends a weekend that is an absolute transformational experience for him in a place that's called the shack. And that weekend represents in my life 11 years. And... um, those 11 years dismantled my world, and, and it looks like we might be going that direction. Interesting. But, um, but one of the things that's sort of a theme in what I do wherever I do it and however the stories are is that there is a God who is good all the time. I mean all the time. And a God who is involved in the details of our lives. But the beauty of this God is that this God does not um, usurp our ability to choose and to make decisions. In fact, part of the reason I think evil exists in the world is because God has greater respect for human beings than we do. We would just simply eradicate it and everybody along with it that was involved in it. But God has this relentless love for even the perpetrators. One of the surprises of the book, and there's a lot of things that surprise me about the book. But I, you know, for example, I wrote the section where Mackenzie deals with forgiveness. You know, there's a whole scene and going up the mountain and and it's near the end of the book. And the issue of forgiveness has been all the way through the book. But forgiveness is a process. It's not an event only. I mean, there are certain events that happen, but you still got to work your way through it, especially when that person shows up again or some memory pops in or whatever. And, um, and so forgiveness is this theme that runs through the book. And part of Mackenzie's issue is that there is a kind of, a, uh, in a sense, clash of wills between him and, and Papa, God, God the Father, because it's time for Mackenzie now to deal with forgiving the perpetrator which is like no <laughs> you know i mean it's almost like mckenzie's and i'm writing from his point of view because i'm mckenzie so um, and the issues of forgiveness in my life i'm kind of mirroring through the process of the book and so mckenzie's kind of like god if you're going to be on my side you got to be hating on the perpetrator like i do you know don't be loving on the perpetrator don't be telling me that that's your child right and, uh, and so there's this clash that takes place and, and through this relentless affection and just breaking apart the stone that has encased Mackenzie's heart bit by little bit with Mackenzie's participation and permission, he begins to realize that he's got himself in a prison himself. But what I didn't expect was that the book is ripping through prisons and the perpetrators are reading that same section from their point of view, not McKenzie's point of view. So they're hearing God argue with the victim saying, I still care, right? And so suddenly there's this whole different view that's emerged. I was with a gal. She's... um, She's a, she is a nurse that flies in the helicopters in Afghanistan, and she, uh, she sort of had a death wish. That is, she would volunteer with the choppers that she knew were going into the most difficult and dangerous areas that would constantly be shot at. And she was telling me why. And she said, you know, her whole adolescence and the way she grew up, she grew up, Uh, Being sexually molested by her father, and as she called him, my father's brother, her uncle, for at least 10 years. Uh, Like, almost like once a week. And as a result, she had become a heart of stone and uh, with a death wish. And in Afghanistan, she runs into this book that's going through the military. the shack. And in it, she runs into the issue of forgiveness and it becomes front and center for her. And she realizes, I've got to deal with this. Well, just at that time, it so happens that she gets a letter from stateside saying, we need you to come home. Dad is dying and you're the nurse in the family. So we want you to take care of him the last six weeks that he's expected to live. Well, she sees this as God setting up an opportunity or being involved in an opportunity to have this conversation with her dad. So she flies stateside, and by the time she gets to his bedside, he's dropped into a coma. And uh, she expects him to come out, that at some point he will come out of the coma. And he doesn't. He just goes deeper into it and deeper into it, and she realizes he's dying. So at 2 o'clock one morning, she pulls up a chair next to his bed and takes his hand and says, Daddy, I am here to ask for both of our forgiveness. And she begins to walk through the damage. This is what you did to me. And this is why I've never been able to have a relationship with a man that was at all healthy. This is why... I am self-destructive. This is why I hate myself. And she begins to walk through all of this. And then she goes back and holding his hand, she says, this is what I forgive you for and begins to name every one of those details. I forgive you for this. And she says, Paul, I'm there and suddenly... Tears come rushing down his face. Not just a little tear, just a cascade of tears come running down his face as I'm forgiving him. And he died never coming out of his coma. And she says, there is no way a human being on this planet could tell me that major things weren't transacted in those moments. The power of forgiveness, the power of the kind of damage in our lives. You know, I, I'm not here because I've lived a life well lived and this is my reward. I'm here as evidence that we're being pursued by a God who is full of grace and kindness and relentless affection. I'll give you a different side to sort of the story. I, when, when I wrote the book and then um, my friends kept giving it away and I had to make 15 more copies at Office Depot <laughs> and they give those away and then I start getting emails from people that I didn't know who wanted to come to Portland to have lunch with Mackenzie because on the first manuscript out of Office Depot I put The Shack by Mackenzie Allen Phillips. With William P. Young. It was a joke for my kids, you know. <laughs> and I had to tell Mackenzie that he couldn't be the author anymore. And I was okay with that. And uh, But the William P. Young stuck, which is kind of funny because nobody in my world knows me as William. My dad's William Henry. I'm William Paul. My son's William Chad. My grandson's William Gavin. And we all go by our middle names. And uh, it was great because when the book finally got published in 07... Um, about three and a half years ago, um, people I knew would call me up, go, have you read this book by this William Young? I mean, he, he <laughs> thinks just like you, you know, <laughs> it's great. So, uh, you know, in the fall of 07, when the book started taking off, which was a surprise because 26 publishers turned it down. So some guys I know created a publishing company and we pooled our resources and found a printer in Los Angeles and this absolutely phenomenal thing happened, that is really a God thing from the very beginning. Because you have to remember, I I made 15 copies and it did everything that I wanted it to do. This is not was not my plan or idea or hope or dream or vision or anything. And um, well, in 07, I'm up till three and a half years ago. I was working. Um, well, February of 08, I finally. I like quit real work I was working three jobs and my main job was working for a little manufacturer's rep office I was shipping out soldering tips and circuit board manufacturing paraphernalia and, um, and I was uh, cleaning the toilets I was in charge of janitorial and so I cleaned it that was three and a half years ago whatever it is February of 2008 so um, so it's uh, it's qu- quite a transition to be doing this and it's not like I was prepared for it, which is a good thing. I'm very grateful I had no idea that this was going to happen. Well, in the fall of 07, when the book started taking off, it got uh, delivered to a friend's garage in May of 07 because he volunteered to ship it at night because he was putting in people's sprinkler systems during the day. And um, and I didn't. he was in L.A., and I didn't know what was going on. We were hoping to get through, you know, 10,000, actually 11,000 copies uh, the first shipment run in uh, two and a half, three years. Well, about two, and a half, two years, I guess we were hoping. Uh, the goal was to get to 100,000 copies and then Hollywood will talk to you about a film. That's the only thing they told me. They, I, we didn't know that the average book only sells 5,000 copies. In its lifetime, less than 4% of all books makes it to 100,000, including textbooks, and 92% of all books published this year will be out of print within two and a half years. Didn't know any of that. I'm thinking 100,000 books. I mean, there's more people than that in Portland. That can't be that hard. <laughs> totally naive, you know. And uh, so I'm working, shipping out soldering tips and cleaning toilets and stuff in the fall of 07. And I start getting emails. My boss is my friend. His name's Mike. And uh, Mike uh, says, why don't you have your emails come here? It was kind of cool because we would order cases of the books from Los Angeles and then it was uh, like dealing drugs out of his warehouse. It was so cool, you know, and because uh, people started buying five and then ten and then cases, and you know and i'd I'd sign them, and so if they'd come to the warehouse and we, so and out of the warehouse in the back of the car, and it was great. I remember this one time this this cop asked me to come meet him for i had two forensic detectives contact me independently looking for the case files. They thought this thing was real. I mean, like, historically real. And I tell them it's a true story. It's just not real, right? (laughs) Like any parable, right? So I had this cop, and he's in full gear and all this, and we're meeting at St. Arbuck's. And uh, so we're sitting there, and um, what? You read it. It says St. Arbuck's. Okay, so we're, we're there, and... He says, Can I buy a case? And I said, Sure. So he pulls his cruiser in behind me in the middle of this shopping center parking lot. And I'm I'm exchanging a case of something for money out of the back of my car with this cop right there. And I'm thinking, what are people thinking? You know, you know they're you know they're driving right by and they're going, and I'm thinking, This is law and grace, you know? <laughs> How cool is this? So I got an email that came into the office and uh And it was this guy that says, um, your book has ruined my life in the best possible way. He says, I live in Park Rose, which happened to be about five miles away from where where I was working in the office for Mike. And he says, um, I don't know if you ever go to coffee, but here's my number. And uh, I'd love to go to coffee sometime. You know how uh, sometimes it's just kind of like, the most natural thing to do is whatever you do the next thing you do. It's like you get this nudge to follow something through. Well, when that came in and I read it, I picked up the phone and called him. And he answered the phone, and his name's Ron. And I said, so, where do you want to go to coffee? He goes, well, uh, I live in Park Rose. And I said, yeah, I know. And I said, I'm living in Gresham at the time. And he says, uh, okay. He says, um, uh and so we talk logistics for a couple minutes and then he says, "You know, I go to coffee a lot. But normally when somebody calls me to go to coffee, by the time I'm finished the conversation, I can tell who I'm talking to. Who are you?" I said, "What do you mean who I am? I mean, you're the one that called me and asked me to go to coffee. I mean, wrote me an email." Are you kidding me? So, he had sent me the email. I immediately called him and we met for coffee that afternoon. Right? And it's um, and it, one of the things I'd been asking God about was because things had been starting to pick up around the book and I'm going, what's going on here? And so I was saying, you know what? It'd be really great to have some people who know how to pray in my life, <laughs> you know, because I don't understand. So it turns out Ronnie is not just a, a prayer person. He's got a whole network of prayer people, which was really a great gift. But it also turned out, that he had played semi-professional rugby for 26 years. I mean, this is a man's man. He drives contaminated waste products around in a big truck. I mean, you know. Now, believe it or not, I played rugby. I'm Canadian-born. I was a hooker, okay? It's a position in rugby. I used to be like six seven. But, and Ronnie, he's Irish Catholic background, right? Total stranger to me, but he played rugby for t- 26 years. And uh, so we connected like immediately on this. And, um, you know, if you've got a good rugby team, you'll go through two or three hookers in a season. So he has a real affinity for hookers. And uh, <laughs> what? So so we 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 have this great connection. So we're talking for about two hours, and it's just like, you ever met somebody that is like, we knew we were always friends, but we finally meet. You know, it's just like instant. So um, we talk, and then we walk down to the city park in Gresham because his family's coming back from a mission trip, and I'm going to get to meet them. This is all in the same day. So we walk down there, and I'm sitting at this picnic table next to Ronnie, and two of his really big guy friends come over and sit across. And one guy, the guy across from me, he says, So how do you know Ronnie? I said, well, we met on the internet. (laughs) So after that, I was always introduced. This is Paul, Ronnie's Canadian hooker. He met on the internet, you know. (laughs) Well, Ronnie and I became instant friends. And he is now one of the best friends in my world. And uh, so about two weeks later, I'm dropping off a, a case of books to him at the post office in Park Rose. And... Outside the post office, he says, I got a question for you. Why a large black African-American woman, right? If you haven't read the book, there is a large black African-American woman in the book. Actually, it's God the Father. But, yeah, get over it. So, um, so he says, why? And I said, well, I said, you know, I grew up in a black culture. I, I grew up on a missionary kid. I grew up in the highlands of New Guinea. I was 10 months old when we went in, so it was my world. In fact, when I went to boarding school when I was six, it was the first time I consciously realized I wasn't black. And it was a huge disappointment. And I'm still kind of disappointed about it, actually. So, so I said, you know, here I am. I'm, I grew up in a black culture. And frankly, I know some of these large black African-American women who are in your face, but you know they love you, but they are in your face. Okay? And I said, you know, in fact... There is a friend of mine, and, uh, and she is a large black African-American woman. I worked for a church one time for two years in the late 70s, and I was working with college kids because I was one. I know the 20s to 30-year-olds, and, and Renee was doing music, and she and I became friends. In fact, about a year and a half ago, she passed away last year, but about a year and a half ago, I was with her in her care facility, and she says, Paul, how come you and I were always friends? I say, that's easy. We were the only two black people in that white church. She says, that's true, that's true. <laughs> so I'm telling Ronnie, Ronnie, there's a. I kind of built the persona off of this black woman I know named Renee Greenwich. And I look up and tears start running down his face. I'm going, this is a tough guy. What's going on? He says, There was a woman in my life who passed away three years ago who was the single biggest influence in my life spiritually, and she was a large black African-American woman named Tony Hill. And I start to bawl because Renee and Tony were roommates. What? Exactly. See? There is a God who is good all the time, who is involved in the details of our lives. And this is part of the beauty of what's going on. Well, a couple weeks after that, we are I'm getting together with Ronnie. I'm trying to do it every every couple weeks we get together, usually at St. Arbuck's. And so we were at St. Arbuck's one morning, and we're sitting there talking about, as we're leaving, Ronnie says to me, because we're talking about how does God look at us individually, you know, the uniqueness of who we are as human beings. Ronnie says, as he's getting in his truck, he says, you know who God said I am to him, Paul? I said, who? Ronnie says, God told me I'm his champion. And boy, as soon as he said it, it just like, that is so true about Ronnie. You know? And I said, that's so true. You know who I am? You know, and I've got this kind of off-the-cuff, dry, weird sense of humor. And, um, and, uh So I said, you know who I am, and I'm just kind of making this up, right? And he laughs. He says, who? I said, I'm the court jester. And he laughs, and he gets in his truck, and he drives away. I take two steps toward home, and it's like the Holy Spirit, and I've never heard God speak audibly to me, but I've learned to hear the voice. And uh, it was like, no, you're not. Whoa, I was just kidding, you know? And so, I mean, it was so strong that I pulled out my phone and I called Ronnie and I said, hey, Ronnie, you know when I just said that I was the court jester? He laughs. I'm not. But I now know who I am. Have you ever been in a conversation where you are saying things to the other person and and you're kind of listening to yourself going, wow, this is really good, you know? To me, that's the Holy Spirit who comes, lives inside of us and shares with us things that are true. And so here I am saying to Ronnie, I now know who I am and I have no clue what's going to come out of my mouth, right? No clue whatsoever. And he says, so who are you? I said, I am the riddle, the joke and the enigma that's in the mouth of the court jester. And he goes, oh, that is so true. And I'm thinking, what the hell did that mean? I have no idea. (laughs) You know, no clue whatsoever. So I walk back to the house, which was just walking distance from St. Arbuck's, and I walk in and I tell Kim, I had this weird conversation, and I tell her about the whole thing, and then I said, and I told him, I'm the joke, the riddle, and the enigma that's in the mouth of the court jester. And Kim goes, oh, that is so true. I'm going, I have no idea what that means. But they obviously know, but I'm not going to say, can you explain that to me? Because then I'd just look dumb, you know? Okay, cool. I'm the joke, the riddle, the enigma. It's in the mouth of Corchester. So th- that was Sunday. Monday, Mike, my friend who's my boss, comes to me and he says, hey, we got an invitation from General Tool to go to a uh, go to resort at the mountains for, a, for 18 holes of golf and a barbecue Saturday. You want to go? No, I don't, I don't golf. Hey, I got to tell you, how many golf here? Okay. I was just... This is The rest of you can talk amongst yourself.
0: <laughs>
1: I was just in uh, like two and a half hours out of Denver. Right now, I don't golf a lot, maybe. Well, this year I probably golfed almost a dozen times, which is like unbelievably a lot for me. So, um, but I was in Denver to speak up at the mountains. And so I went up in the mountains and the first thing they did is they took me to a golf course Beautiful. We're at 8,500 feet. Thank God for carts. Because, <laughs> I mean, you can just take three steps up the hill and you're going, <gasps> you know, because of the thin air. So I'm up there and the and it's dusk is setting and we're on a par five, 400, no, 545 yard par five dog leg right. And I crushed my, my, my drive, probably 230 yards, which is really good for me. And it kind of was this thing that kind of went out of sight because it was on the left-hand side of the, of the fairway and it kind of disappeared. So we all hit good shots. We went down there. We found everybody's ball except mine. Couldn't find my ball. And I'm thinking, what? It was a great shot. I'm looking for the squirrel, you know. So I can't find it. So I finally had to drop one and I hit my second shot, probably a really good second shot, 15, feet, 15 yards this side of the, the pin. <sighs> Two shots in a row, you know. So I go down there and I find my first ball 10 feet away from my second ball. The only thing we can... And it's my ball. There's no question about it. And the only thing we can figure out is that it hit the end of the golf cart path or some sprinkler head or something and launched. I hit a 530-yard drive. Yeah, yeah, see? It will never happen again. But I, I think God has got such a great sense of humor, you know, and I had witnesses and the whole thing. It was so cool. So, so anyway, totally aside. That's it. So we got invited by General Tool to resort at the mountains. Now, I had been to resort at the mountains once before, 15 years ago, and it's kind of a really beautiful up on Mount Hood golf course. And he said, we get 18 holes, we get golf carts, and we get a barbecue, and everybody gets a door prize from, from uh, General Tool. Okay, you want to go? Yeah. He says, but I want to go to breakfast. Is that okay? Now, remember, this is the Saturday after the Sunday. I had this strange conversation with Ron Graves. So he said, I want to go to breakfast. I said, well, I'll just drop my car off at your place and we'll drive up together. He said, great. So I do that and we drive up to Resort of the Mountains. We walk into the restaurant at Resort of the Mountains, which I haven't been in in for 15 years. And I can't believe what I see the entire place is filled with court jesters, with the little beanie things. I'm serious. I didn't think these guys existed. But the Royal Order of Jesters decided to have their national conference that Saturday at Resort of the Mountains. And I'm going, no way. So I walked over to the first table and I said... "Uh, none of my friends are going to believe you guys are here, let alone exist, you know? Do you have a souvenir I could have that could kind of prove that you're here? And the guy says, talk to him. And they pointed me over to this guy who is the director, and I have in my bag out in the car, the director's pin for the royal order of jesters. So I walk over and he gives me this, and he says to me, well, you know what a jester is, right? And I went, sure, no. Actually, I I really don't. I mean, I haven't thought about jesters since I was a kid in, in grade school, you know. And he said, well, let me explain to you about the court jester. I said, okay. He said, the court jester was the highest advisor to the king. And it was the court jester's job to use whatever means necessary. Sarcasm, irony, ridicule, speech whatever means necessary to communicate to the king and to a room full of agendas what the truth really was. And then I think, oh, my goodness. Throughout literature, the royal jester has often been a type of Jesus, Harlequin, who drops into a world full of agendas and communicates to the king through any means necessary, what the truth really is. And suddenly I realize I get to be the joke, a good joke, but a joke, and a riddle and an enigma that's in the mouth of the court jester. And that's how I understand some of this. Uh, It's a joke. I mean, it's so funny. If you talk to my friends and family about what's happened, I mean, the book's in 41 languages. Do you know that the shack is in the top 50 books of all history now? Now, that's a riddle, okay? And it's an enigma. It just doesn't make sense, especially if you understand my life. The, um, the great sadness is a theme for me. The shack is a theme for me. And you can read the book just like a story, but it's also a metaphor. It's also stands for something. The shack for me is the house on the inside. It's the house that people help you build. It's the the soul, the heart of a human being. It's um it's the place that for many of us is just a broken down almost unhabitable dwelling that we have come to hate. So a lot of us that don't, we don't have any affection for our own souls. And a lot of it comes from the way that we were raised or experiences that we had or tragedy. My two great sadnesses are a very, my two main great sadnesses are a very difficult relationship with my father. Very difficult. And I told people in the earlier service that it, It took me 50 years to wipe the face of my father completely off the face of God. And sexual abuse for me that started when I was about four and a half within the tribal community. And it was a lot. And when I was six, I was shipped out to boarding school and uh, it was mandatory. You either sent your kids away or you left the mission field. And, uh, you know, and this is my... My parents were under the idea that a lot of missionaries were at the time that if you just did the work of God, God would take care of the details, you know, like kids. And my generation got slaughtered for the name of Jesus and the gospel. And uh, the first night at boarding school, the first nights the big boys came and molested the little boys. And it just became part of my shack, you know, so... It became a place where I hid my addictions, you know, and stored up my secrets, a place of shame and and pain. And and what do you do? Because children, they're not, you know, they are not designed to deal with this at all. Human beings aren't. Sexual abuse is a shattering thing. It just, it breaks apart the filaments and and the, the basic fabric of the human heart. And, uh, and you're left without boundaries and you're left without any sense of affection for yourself. And so you have to find a way to survive. And you can put 10 children in front of the same abuse and you'll have 10 lives go 10 totally different directions because of the uniqueness of the human soul in respect to the kind of damage that happens. You cannot, you cannot compare your pain with anybody's. People say to me, well, I've never, I never went through what you did. I don't care. Your pain is your pain. The uniqueness of your soul responded to your history uniquely. You can't compare your pain with anybody else nor your healing process. Mackenzie's weekend is 11 years for me. What I call the renovation of my shack, right? And it doesn't mean there's not a lot of finish work because there is, but the major Construction stuff happened, but it took me 11 years for some people. It takes a lot longer than that and for some people a lot shorter again the uniqueness of the human heart. The soul is what God intends to heal. Who you are. Well, see, what do you do? How do you how do you find a way to survive? Well, you develop all kinds of skills, all kinds of survival techniques. You know, I'm, I'm a missionary kid. I'm a preacher's kid. When we came back to Canada, I spent, uh, well, I went to 13 schools before I graduated high school. I know how to leave. You know, and so, but I'm religious, so I, I never ran away from relationships. I just heard God call me somewhere else. Yeah, anywhere else, you know. What I ended up with is I created a facade outside the shack. You know, when you hate the shack, what do you give to people? Well, I built this little thin piece of plywood outside the shack that I could paint as fast as I could pick up people's expectations. Because I didn't live from the inside out. I hated what's on the inside, and I thought God hated it too. And I'm always trying to to pretend it doesn't exist, you know, and rededicate myself and try again. And And so... For people I'd say and for God I'd say, okay, so what do you want? You know, how much prayer do you want? Like lots and how much giving and how much study and just tell me what you want. Just tell me what you want, and I can be that. You know, and and people I do the same thing. Just tell me what you want. I can do that. I can perform and maybe I can win some of your affection and approval. Thin layer of perfectionist performance that covers up an ocean of shame. So I'm one thing to one group of people, but this group of people, they want something else. So I'm trying to pick that up. And I don't have any boundaries, so I'm trying to pick up their boundaries and live inside their boundaries. Because I don't have any from the inside. And I've built this facade that I'm hoping will win. See, you know what my hope was? I wasn't trying to be duplicitous. I was trying to be like God and hate the shack. Right? Because I thought he did. And I was trying to present God and everybody else with something that was perfect. And my hope was that if I could just do it right, one day that little piece of wood would become a real boy. Because I hated the real boy. And I thought everybody would if they just knew. That's why we keep our secrets, because we're terrified if anybody finds out we will lose those bits and pieces of light, you know, the little scraps of affection and approval. But the trap of secrets is is when people offer us the things that would bring healing to our hearts, the affection and the love and the forgiveness, we don't believe them because they don't know the secrets. If they only knew the secrets, they wouldn't be offering us these things. So we're absolutely trapped by the secrets we keep. And we are as sick as the secrets we keep. And my life was full of secrets. And I'm praying to God saying, why don't you heal me? I'm giving you everything I got. I'm giving you my time and my money and my effort. I'm studying, I'm reading, I'm going to Bible school, I'm going to seminary. Why don't you heal me? And the best that I can do is try to rededicate myself and hide it again and try again and move somewhere else and try over again. Maybe this time if I take a hard enough run at it, I can get far enough down the road that I can get past the impact of all these things. But the addictions, they kept showing up. And I have to hear God call me somewhere else. I... I graduated Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude, first in my class from college, and I walked out thinking, literally thinking, I fooled them. Because I didn't think there was any real creativity. I thought that I had just created it to win the approval and the affection of others. I got a job working for a church where I met Renee, I told you about. I was working with the college kids, and and that, you know, 20s to 30-year-olds, and we had the kind of going thing in Portland, and uh, there were like 300 to 700 kids, and I was in charge of it. And one night, this girl walks in. Her name's Kim, and she walks in with two of her five sisters, who I'd never seen any of them before, and I'm in charge that night, so I immediately change what we're planning to do so we can break up into groups of two and pray for each other. When people ask me how I met Kim, that's what I tell them. It's the truth. So over the next months, Kim and I became friends, but I've been told that during this period of time I was really involved with this girl named Cheryl. I don't know. And here's why I don't know. There was this one day I was I was out jogging because when you're five foot six, you have to stay in shape to compete, you know. So, <laughs> so, I'm out jogging. I'm actually jogging over to the parking lot at the church to pick up Kim's car, which he had left there over the weekend. So I'd done it as a favor, and uh, and East Hill parking lot was up on East Hill Church, uh, East Hill, and it's across four lanes, two lanes going either direction with a center turning lane in the middle. And I got hit by a high-risk driver, 17-year-old, doing 55 miles an hour in the center turning lane. So I'd have made it across halfway, and he just nailed me playing chicken or something and just miscalculated and knocked me a half a block. And I land in front of the pastor's house as he's walking out the door to get in his car to go to the airport to go fly and speak somewhere. And he's an ex-EMT. So he was on me like that. Within two minutes, an off-duty ambulance happened to be coming one direction and two off-duty police officers the other direction, and they all converged. And they say, I never lost consciousness, but I was loopy. Loopy, it's a technical term. (laughs) It, It means this. So what happened anyway? Well, Paul, you were in a really serious car accident. You were hit by a car. Oh, so what happened anyway? For 24 hours, I was stuck in this loop. That's all I could ask was what happened anyway. And they'd tell me, And except they said that they had to perform surgery on parts of my body, but they couldn't use anesthetic because uh, they didn't want to sh- send me into a coma because of the head injuries. They say I screamed a lot, and uh, but I'm grateful I don't remember. Well, a day or two later, I come to conscious awareness, that is, I'm aware of myself for the first time after the accident. And, I, and I'm in this room and I know what a bed is and I know what food is and I know what windows are, but I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. I don't know what year this is. I don't know what country I'm in, right? I have no clue. And I don't know one person who walks in the door. The only relationship that I knew was that I had a relationship with Jesus. That's the only one that made it through this period of time. And because of that, I knew I was going to be okay. And in fact, it was one of the most peaceful periods of my life because I didn't even know who I was. So there was no expectations on my life whatsoever. I had no ability to perform. I had no clue. It was incredible. So everybody else is freaking out, and I'm fine. Kim walks in the door to come visit me, freaks out, runs out. And I'm thinking... She's cute. (laughs) So (laughs) over the next weeks, chunks of my memory come back, right? Over the next months, bigger chunks come back. Some things never came back. Cheryl didn't come back, which really ticked her off. What am I supposed to do? I have one little memory of sitting in a car talking to her. You can't really build an ongoing relationship off of that. You know, so she got mad, married this other guy. And uh, <laughs> I'm going, what am I supposed to do, right? Well, that fall, I went on a trip up through Canada to try to collect pieces of my history. And on that trip, I hear God say, spoke to my heart and said, Marry Kim. Now, I'm thinking, oh, that's not a bad idea. But then I think, you know, how am I going to ask her? Because uh, we haven't even really dated. So I figure if I ask her in a group setting, it's safer. <laughs> <laughs> Guys are stupid. What can I tell you, you know? <laughs> so I plan this party in which I write her a card that says, will you marry me, you know? And, uh, and I write cards for everybody, 15 people. And, you know, I create the party to welcome us home from this trip. That's the guise to ask Kim in a public setting if she'll marry me because you're supposed to read your card out loud to everybody. I palm hers to the bottom because I figure once she reads hers, the evening is going to go one way or the other, you know. (laughs) So we go around the circle. I'm 24 years old at the time, by the way. And uh, we go around the circle and we get to Kim. She opens up her card and she says, Will you... At that point, and she would tell you if she was standing here, this crossed her mind. If I say no to him, he will never ask me again. But if I say yes, I can back out. You got to love this woman. There is a reason that Kim and her five sisters are called the Force. So, she says, yes, we were married 11 days later. I couldn't have made it 12. I ran 103, 104 degree temp anyway. And I don't think it's because I was sick. Suddenly, everything has changed. You see, one of my survival mechanisms was my ability to leave I could wrap it up in lots of really beautiful religious language, but I was getting the heck out of Dodge, right? And I wanted to start over again. And suddenly, suddenly, I realized that God has trapped me. I'm set up, right? And Kim and I both agree he blinded her because she's got a great crap detector. She should have not (laughs) said yes, right? Now, she doesn't realize it, but from that moment... All my history of suicidal stuff comes right to the front. And I'm literally suicidal. Let me tell you one of the most powerful things that shame does. Remember? Thin layer of perfectionist performance covering up an ocean of shame. Well, when somebody pops down through your performance and they say, you know, you're not all you're cracked up to be. Up comes your shame and you have two responses, right? Flight or fight. Fight. And when you're five foot six, you don't fight physically well, so you learn to use words. And I could take a 300 pound guy and cut him to shreds, because I know how to hide knives inside words. And one of my defense mechanisms was that if Kim would say something to me and poke a hole down through my performance, I could turn that conversation back on her so fast her head would spin and make it her fault, right? And she would literally say, I walked in here knowing I was right. I'm walking out feeling like a piece of crap. How did you do that? And I wouldn't know. It was just this reactive response that's a defense mechanism because it's all about safety, right? And staying safe. We got married, and Kim started to say the most terrible things to me you can imagine. Like this. Paul. Paul. Don't mix the colors with the whites. Can you believe that? (laughs) Laundry, right? Thin layer of perfectionist performance that covers up an ocean of shame. Let me tell you one of the most powerful things of shame. It destroys your ability to distinguish between an observation and a value statement. What did I hear her say? I don't know why I married such a loser of a human being as you. She's saying, don't mix the colors with the whites. I'm hearing, you suck as a human being. And I drop into the same hole as when my dad would come at me and and realize my dad is a mixed bag like any human being. He did marvelous, wonderful things. He just didn't know how to be a father. And he didn't know what to do with all his anger and all his shock. So he drug me into his as well as my own. And when the abuse would happen, you fall into this little place where you just freeze up and you can't think and and you just become small and you hope you just disappear. I never let Kim in the shock. I didn't want her to hate me. But I was living with a woman from Minnesota, North Dakota. These people, they're genetically enhanced to all talk loudly at the same time and understand each other, right? And I'm from a little religious family. We hide everything. We lie about almost everything. You know, we have to have an order of service when we get together, you know? But I'm a missionary kid and I can adapt. And I adapted. I learned how to be a a good husband Better than a lot, but it was from the neck up, right? Because everything below the neck was just a shattered mess. So I could perform love and kindness and grace, but it's not because it was coming from the heart, because the heart was just a mess. And I'm a good performer, and I'm a good adapter. And then we started having children, And I learned how to be a father, largely because of Kim and her dad. Her dad came and lived with us. Kim's dad lived with us for 17 years. Died on his 84th birthday in 2002, surrounded by kids in balloons. His name is Willard. We all called him Willie. He's the Willie in the book. It's Kim's dad. It's my father-in-law. And I watched him and I watched Kim and I learned as best I could how to be a father. But underlying it all, the addictions still continued as much as I tried to hammer them down. And I'm still saying, I'm trying. How come you don't heal me? Here's what I'd love to tell you what happened. I'd love to say, you know, there was this day where I finally realized how screwed up I was. So I I went and got some professional help. And now I'm all better. It's not what happened. Some of us are so damaged that the only hope for us is to get caught. I got caught. My 11 years in the shack started January 4th, 1994 at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That was the day that my facade came crashing down and all I was left with was the shack. That's the day that began my journey to find out that God never loved the facade, and I thought that's what He loved. is my ability to perform for him. And I found he loved the shack, complete with all the damage. I got a phone call from Kim two o'clock in the afternoon, and this is what she said to me, one sentence. I am waiting for you at your office. The business that I owned. I'm waiting for you at your office and I know. That's all it took. What Kim knew was I was in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. I told you, what has happened is not because of a life well lived. It's an expression of the grace of God. I had to make a decision. And there was only one of two choices. Run away? Why? I was done. Matthew had just been born. Our sixth child is now 18. And uh, I had to make a choice. And the choice was this. Face my wife or kill myself. To this day, I don't know how I made it across town and found myself driving into the parking lot of my office where Kim was waiting for me. When you have no facade left, all you've got is this ocean of shame. And I walked in to face my wife who had already torn the office up, literally. And she lit into me with every piece of fury that she possesses. And four hours into it, I said to her, Kim, if we're going to do this, I have to tell you every secret I have. Because secrets have been killing me my whole life. And naively, Kim said, Bring it on. And it took me the next four days to tell my wife all my secrets. And at the end of those four days, Kim was destroyed. And she said, I will never believe another word that comes out of your mouth the rest of your life. And I believed her. She let me stay in our home for two reasons. She was hoping, if possible, that our children could grow up with a father. And the second thing, as angry and furious as she was, and she was for a long time, she believed I'd hit the bottom. And one of the evidences was I went right to the yellow pages and looked up help. And I found Agape Youth and Family Services who specialized in sexual abuse. And I called them and I set up an appointment and I walked in and met a man named Scott Mitchell, a total stranger. And I sat in front of this man for the first time and I said, my life is over. And for the first time in my life, I said these words to a human being. Can you help me? Can you help me? Because I knew I couldn't heal myself. I've been trying for 30-some years. And I knew I couldn't heal anybody else. I couldn't heal Kim. And Scott said, yeah, I can help you, but it's going to take a year and a half. And he said, I said, I'm in. He said, yeah, right. He said, everybody who sits where you're sitting, they're always saying they're in. But after a couple months, right before the really hard stuff, you'll bail out like everybody does. You'll feel a little more in control. And I said, Scott, you need to understand something. I don't even trust myself to know when I'm done. I am not leaving until you tell me I'm done. He said, good. And we began to work. And every day that I was with Scott, I'd call Kim and tell her what was going on. And every day she would say the same thing. Yeah, right, whatever. And that was okay because I knew I couldn't heal her. And I'm thinking, you know what? This is what it's going to be like the rest of our lives. She is not going to believe one thing. And why should she? I remember I called her the day, this one day, and I'm bawling on the phone. I'm saying, Kim, the most amazing thing has happened. I don't know how, but in the course of what I've been working on with Scott, suddenly I have a boundary that's been established inside of me. You know, something inside that could say no. And I'm just bawling because I didn't think that would ever be possible. And Kim says, yeah, right, whatever. And that's okay because I can't heal her. Scott was right. It got really hard. It got really hard. Kim's pounding on me every day. How could you do this? How could any human being do this to another human being? See, Kim comes from a world where she didn't know you could be more than one thing. How could could you do this to your children? How could you do it to their children? I've heard you speak and you teach these great things over here and this crap is happening in your heart over here. How can this be? And she pounds me to the edge of this cliff and it's like she spins me around and she says, there, deal with it. And I'm looking down in this abyss and it's full of my crap and I'm thinking, what do you want me to do? You want me to go back to before I'm four years old and and see if there's anything real? I don't know what's a defensive mechanism and a survival skill and what's real. And I look down in this and I'm thinking, you know what? who haven't i hurt i've hurt every single person that matters to me in my world and my hope disappeared i was done and i began planning a trip to mexico because i didn't want my children to find my body Two friends showed up. One of them went to Kim. His name is Kenny Walker. And Kenny is a broken boy like me, except he didn't hide it. And he goes to Kim, unbeknownst to me, and he says to her, Kim, I am so sorry. This is so not fair. You've been so hurt. You've been so betrayed. And now you're supposed to be the one that forgives. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you've had to come down from the mountain of normalcy to find out what some of us are like. And then Kenny says to Kim, All I can tell you is that Paul is doing the best he knows how right now. But I think if you hit him one more time, metaphorically, if you hit him one more time, you're going to kill him. Kenny had no idea I was standing on the edge of this cliff. And Kim listened to Kenny and just backed off a little bit, just created a little bit of space. And into that space came another friend of ours named Kitty. And she says, Paul, tell me where you are right now. And I described being pummeled to the edge of this cliff and looking down into this abyss. And I said, you know what, Kitty, you know all I am? All I am is a little piece of dried up shit. And the wind is blowing it away and I'm terrified that when it's done, there won't be anything left. And Kitty says, Paul, there is a seed. A seed? I'm thinking there is a seed? And then I think, you know, if there was a seed even if it was a really tiny seed, something could grow. I don't know what it is, but something could grow. And then I think, you know, seeds, they grow good in this kind of stuff. (laughs) In that little tiny seed, all my hope came back. A seed. That was the last day I've ever been suicidal. And I went back to work. And we worked. Nine months into this, Scott says, you're done. He says, we've never had anybody work this hard and stay with it. And he knew it was because it was life or death if I couldn't find some healing and change. That started, it was the first nine months of an 11-year process. It took Kim and I 11 years to heal till the end of 2004. Beginning of 2005, I finally felt one of the healthiest people that I knew. I don't have any secrets anymore. It's a lot easier to live this way, by the way. It takes a lot of energy to keep your secrets going and, you know, keep your different worlds apart. I don't have any addictions, and I'm not talking just pornography and those kind of crappy things. I'm talking the gold chain ones, like doing something significant for God, like pleasing my dad. I found out during those 11 years that. It's who I am that's significant, not what I did. People ask me if I felt an inordinate sense of the presence of the Spirit of God when I wrote The Shack. And I say, no more than when I was cleaning toilets. And you have to understand me. I wouldn't trade any of this for this sense of his affection that it took me 50 years to find. It took me 50 years to become a child. I'm not going back to being an adult. It's way too much work. I like this living inside the grace of one day. And a couple years ago, in front of me, Kim says to my friends, who all know my history because I didn't make this the new secret. She says to them, you know, I would never thought I would ever say this in my life. It was all worth it. It was worth it. And what she is saying is there is not anything so dead that God can't grow something in it. There is not anything so broken that he doesn't know how to heal it or so lost he doesn't know where to find it. It was all worth it. And she's saying he's worth it. In the beginning of 2005, I finally felt healthy enough as a human being to do something that Kim had been asking me to do for four years was write something for my children that would put in one place how I think. And so I started writing this little story. My prayer, and still is, in 05, I only had a couple left after my 11 years. (laughs) my prayer, my main prayer was this, Papa, I am never going to ask you again to bless anything that I do. You know, because I'm a religious kid. You know, I've been asking God to follow me for years. (laughs) You know, what's funny is that God says to me, he says, Paul, your adventure or mine, I'll go on yours, but I'm not going to do anything. (laughs) I am done with that. Let me tell you, it's way too much work. I said, Papa, I'm never going to ask you again to to bless anything that I do, but if you've got something you're blessing and it would be okay for me to be a part of that, I'd be all over it. And I don't care if I'm cleaning toilets or shining shoes or holding the doors open. I just want to know at the end of the day, you did this and you let me participate. And in retrospect, it's almost like Papa said, Well, Paul, you know, how about if I bless this little story you're writing over here for your kids, you know? You give it to your kids, and then I'll give it to mine. And that's what's happened. So I stand here today as evidence of a God who is full of relentless affection, who loves the shack so much so that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have climbed into our hearts to heal us from the inside out. Our souls. You have a faith that is being tested by fire, a faith that is worth more than gold that perishes, and now you are receiving the gold, the object, the telos, the end of this faith, which is the healing, the salvation, but the word is healing, the healing of your soul. He is in love with you. You matter. And he doesn't heal us so that he can use us. He heals us because he loves us. And then he invites us to play. for the praise of his glory. Amen.
0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your relentless love. Thank you, Lord, that you love us just as we are right here, right now. And that you're here in this place to help us and to heal us. All of us have a shack inside of us, God. Give us the courage and the love and the strength to deal with what we need to deal with right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. Some of you uh, might want to talk to Paul. Some of you might want to step over here and have somebody from the prayer team pray with you. They'll be just over here. But thank you so much for being here today. God bless.